I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Commons People, HuffPost's politics podcast. I'm Ned Simons. Uh, We're back from Christmas uh, in time for everything to kick off again. Uh, Paul War is here. Hi, Paul. Hello, and we're joined by Anand Menon from the UK and a Changing Europe Think Tank. Hi, Anand. Hi, Anand. And our newest expert on the panel, uh, Nikki DaCosta, former Director of Legislative Affairs. That's hard to say, isn't it? <laughs> At number 10. Hey, Nikki. Morning. <laughs> so it's just a few days now until MPs finally, in theory, get to vote on Theresa May's deal. Um, here's a clip of Michael Gove speaking in the Commons just a few minutes ago, trying to sell it to Brexiteers. Well, let's listen to the words of the Shadow International Trade Secretary, the member for Brent North, when he was asked about those six tests. He summed them up pithily in a word which in Spanish translates as cojones <laughs> and in English rhymes with rollocks. Now, I know, Mr Speaker, that there are some distinguished citizens in this country who have put on their cars a poster or sticker saying bollocks to Brexit. But we now know from Labour's own front bench that their official Brexit position is bollocks. (laughs) So, a simple question, everyone. Over Christmas, maybe Paul first. Has anything changed? Are more MPs now going to back the deal than they were before? I I, I know this is controversial, but I think more MPs will back the deal, but only by a tiny, tiny number. Um, In other words, there's very little evidence. There's no convert that the PM has been able to drag out and, and sort of parade in front of everybody and say, look, so-and-so has changed their mind, so you've got to change your mind as well. So that, so they haven't had the sort of big names that would, would mm. do that. I suspect people will have over Christmas, despite all the ridicule of all this. I think people will have sat back over Christmas and thought, actually, yeah, well, this is actually the best thing we're going to get. But there won't be many of them. And why? Because actually what Steve Barclay outlined yesterday in the, in the Commons really doesn't add to, uh, much to, amount to much that's new. I mean, the business motion, which we can go on to later, itself, it was implicit that nothing had really changed. Otherwise, the business motion wouldn't have been worded as it was. And on top of that, what the PM's really re- holding out for is, and it's not going to come this Friday, but it will almost certainly come over the weekend or on Monday or even as late as Tuesday, is this famous letter from the EU, which is going to have clarifications. Mm. That's the last bit in the locker that she's got to change people's minds. And not many people expect it's going to change many minds. Mm. So are we still expecting the vote to be lost, do you think, Nikki? Yes, I, I, mean, I, I completely agree with Paul. I think numbers have come down. If you take it at the extreme, uh, that number on the no confidence of 117, now that's with the the, the protection of anonymity, um, you've probably then got Christmas and that shock of seeing the deal in, in, in the flesh has started to disappear, that uh, that grief uh, starts to ease. So you get to a pragmatism and then when you're in, in the lobby it changes. So I reckon you know, you, you're probably around... Uh, etc. But I still think if you were to go for a straight on the nose vote on the deal, mm. it will be lost. The question is whether you have an amendment uh, which is passed before that, which prevents a straightforward vote on the deal. And is that what we're expecting, or what, what would you say? 
Yesterday we saw that um, they ha uh, the government had officially accepted Hugo Soir's amendment. No, so you know, um, Hugo Soir did an excellent job drafting this, uh, in, in, uh, <laughs> uh, and hats off to him. Uh, the government find it to be very acceptable. Uh, I think you'll have that go down. You know, my hunch is, look, it, 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 people are already saying, DUP said, I think Steve Baker said, look, this isn't really worth enough. But maybe you might look at that and you go, I'll add an amendment to that. The government can't do that bit or have their, you know, hands on it because there'll be bits where the EU might cry out against that. But I might look at that and add something else. And then maybe you're edging towards being able to pass something uh, which says, here's the recipe, guys. EU, look at that, see what you can do. That's interesting. Mm. There's also sort of the forces of the kind of anti-no deal have been out in force. Greg Clark this morning was uh, kind of broke cover even more, saying it would be a disaster. Um, but Anand, do we think they actually can stop no deal? I mean, is there, if there's a majority f like against no deal, is there a majority for a specific thing? Well, you need a majority for something exactly. else. Exactly. That's the problem. Mm. Uh, and it's interesting just to note how polarised the Tory party is now, both, I mean, Tim Bale did that stuff on party members a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we did some stuff on MPs recently. And the numbers of Tory party members and MPs who do not think no deal is going to have bad consequences for the country really is quite eye-watering and a real roadblock, I think, mm -hmm. for the Prime Minister. And those numbers, I mean, from the, from the scuttlebutt in Parliament, you hear more and more Tory MPs saying, look, I've got an inbox full of stuff saying, just leave, we don't need a deal, it's fine. And insofar as some of them are moving, they're moving in precisely the wrong direction <laughs> for the Prime Minister. I mean, that's the problem. I mean, Nikki, you, you're absolutely right. I suspect the government will allow some kind of extra add-on to that Swire Amendment. The question is what it's going to contain. And I don't really know. I mean, it w certainly talking to people in Number 10, it sounds as though they're very, very keen on stressing that, look, this is, won't be a trap, this won't be forever, and it might be toughening that language as a way to say, look... This kind of language we can accept. The EU might not come up with what we want by Monday or Tuesday, but maybe a backbencher can be persuaded to, to strengthen that language, and then we can go back to the EU. Everything I hear from Number 10 is that actually, despite them, they're not talking about it publicly, they expect to lose, but it, they could use it as leverage with the EU. Now, the question is then, given, and we'll go on to the Groove Amendment, they won't have much time in which for Europe to actually come up with what they want, will they? Or will they? Well, th th this is the problem. I mean, Dominic Grieve usually drafts beautiful amendments, and so one should always have a question mark as when it's not totally clear, did he really mean it to be not clear? So what it says is you have to, within three days, bring forward a motion. That's it. Yeah. Table. Slam it Just on the order paper. That's what it says. Um, so what you need, you know, so look, in any event... Nobody, I can't imagine any political journalist would expect the Prime Minister not to respond within hours mm. at the maximum yeah. 24 mm. hours. You wouldn't leave the space open because people will inject themselves into that. And you wouldn't leave it 21 days, no, would you? No, no, <laughs> extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, just, we'll just go quiet. Nothing yeah. from number 10 for 21 days. Yeah. I mean, it'd be quite interesting <laughs> to see what would happen um, in some parallel universe. So the PM was going to respond in any case, and then you would say, you know, I'm going to go and do this. Uh, so what it means is then you have to, you're formalising that moment on the order paper. But if I was the Prime Minister, I would reply, you know, and say, you know, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back to the EU. I've heard the will of the Commons, and I think it's worth one more shot. And then if you are those rebellious Conservative MPs, you've actually then got this choice of three days do I give the Prime Minister that time or do I look like I'm just so itching to pull the trigger that I just want to jump ahead? And I think that's a difficult thing. It, it, uh, we'll see what happens, but you could put off that vote. 
Yeah, it's I mean, interesting because you, you are allowed another seven days, aren't you, until the actual vote itself? Yes. So first of all, you need a statement, and I probably think you probably need to label this. This is the official statement as set out in Section 13. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then you have... Uh, and you, that can be anywhere. It doesn't have to be in the Commons. It could be it's, on the steps of number 10. Absolutely. That's um, interesting. Uh, and then you have to... Uh, within seven sitting days of that, you have to have a vote. Uh, um, so that would be the, sort of the sequence from there. So there's, the government still has some play. Otherwise, there is, though the political pressure of what the Commons is saying it now expects. Yeah. There was obviously an almighty row in the Commons yesterday when uh, the Speaker selected that amendment by Dominic Grieve. Um, actually, I think if we listened to John Burko earlier today hitting out at the uh, MPs, he said that were abusing him. Order. I'd look forward to hearing from colleagues who do have the chance to participate in the business question, as, of course, the Right Honourable Lady, the Leader of the House, has not merely the opportunity but the obligation to do so. So I will content myself simply with saying this. There was nothing arbitrary about the conduct of the chair yesterday. This speaker is well aware of how to go about the business of chairing the proceedings of the House because he's been doing so for nine and a half years. And I hope colleagues will understand when I say that I require no lessons or lectures from others about how to discharge my obligations to Parliament and in support of the rights of backbench parliamentarians. I have been doing it, I'm continuing to do it, and I will go on doing it, no matter how much abuse I get from whatever quarter. It is water off a duck's back, as far as I am concerned. So... Burko himself, you know, in that clip, obviously, is very kind of angry, you can tell. Has his position been damaged? I mean, the, the substance of Brexit aside, which we've been talking about, just the kind of sideshow, in a, in a, a sense, well, you know. Well, Nikki the... can talk more to this directly, given her, her recent experience in number 10 on, on precisely this kind of drafting of business motions. But, I mean, from my point of view, um, there's a very simple point, which is that actually... This is about chaos as opposed to non-chaos. And I think that's what really upset a lot of MPs. Um, I got messages from MPs who were Tories who were friendly to Burka, who said, I think he's blown it now. You know, I backed him up until this point, but actually what he's done today has torn up all the rules. And it's not that he's sided with one side. It's that there's this uncertainty now. Can the clerks ever be trusted uh, to, to deliver advice? Can he be trusted to deliver their advice on behalf of Parliament? And they're worried that actually the normal machinery will just gum up because there's the, everyone will think at the back of their mind, the government and opposition, you know, can this be changed? Now, the counter to that is obviously, from the layman's point of view, what's wrong with the Commons actually deciding on any motion it wants to vote? You know, I mean, that's Burko's overriding political point, not a constitutional one. Um, and, you know, for years, I remember sitting in Tony Wright's, you know, Constitutional Affairs Committees. For years, people like Tony Wright, the former Labour MP, have been pushing a thing called a House Business Committee, which has never got off the ground. <laughs> now, everyone hates the idea. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Labour hates it, hated the idea. The old guard and Labour hated it for obvious reasons. Yep. It, would, it would trammel their, or it could yeah. tell their own ability in government and the Tories have obviously flirted with it under William Hague William Hague actually did push it quite hard and then uh, stepped there's back. a lot of Look things at, that I, happened I want to go to Nick who's been wincing as yes. you mentioned here. <laughs> but I say, so there is a case for saying actually the House should in some way formalise that it's in charge rather than the government of its own business but as Nicky will explain I'm sure that um, there's lots of problems with that <laughs> so I, I think 
in normal times, obviously, the government has a majority and is able to have its way. Uh, I think that you know the, the number one principle is if, th if you take it back at, at a macro level for the country, when you elect a party and then you elect a government, you want them to deliver on their manifesto promises. And to do that, you need control of the time in Parliament. You don't want that time taken up with umpteen smaller measures that every and it's the pet project of every MP, you actually want something substantive going through Parliament. And that's really the argument against a backbench business committee arranging all the business of Parliament. It's actually, Parliament's there to do a serious job, not just to be atomising and, and meeting the needs of individual uh, MPs. Yeah. So, I mean, the really interesting question then is whether this is the new normal. So, you know, given the divisions in yes. the country, the state of our politics, then actually, at that yeah. point, it's worth reconsidering, isn't it? I think that... Um, so I, 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 one of the things I think, let's take this back. One of the critiques from those that um, backed what Burko did yesterday was saying this was a strike back from the Commons against an overly mighty executive. And yet the entire narrative since the general election, we have not seen a disempowered Commons. We have seen <laughs> wonderful use of the existing rule books. So let's take opposition days granted in the standing orders. Then you layer on top of that this extraordinary use of humble addresses to summon papers into the public domain that you've never seen before. And then you back that up with the ability to put Parliament in con uh, to say that the government is in contempt of Parliament. And we saw it work on the legal advice. Um, if you then on the, m the sort of more mundane, you've seen PMQs extend from 30 minutes to 45. You've seen statements last hours as every backbencher gets to question. So I don't think the existing rules were in any way in, uh, getting in the way of the Commons holding the government to account. Uh, it's a good point. I mean, that's, you know, Labour themselves are very wary. Some Labour, old Labour MPs are thinking, actually, we're playing with fire here if we, if we get on this route. Because if we get elected with a small majority, and let's be honest, the, the, the chance of a large Labour majority doesn't look that possible right a now. A small majority, half of whom don't agree with the leader. Exactly. <laughs> that, that's the point. So it, it could gum up things for everybody. I mean, the counter to that, mm. obviously, is that the government, for some bizarre reason, last year decided it was not going to oppose opposition day debates. Now, I think that was a big strategic blunder which has ended up with them you know having egg on their face well you mentioned labor and uh, maybe it's like a time to listen to jeremy corbyn who gave a speech uh, just this afternoon setting out his in Brexit. wakefield in wakefield uh, which is <laughs> where anand's from or not, ah. has, has <laughs> familiarity with you would say i think he called it wakefield when he opened the speech, <laughs> yes. which is so, very corbyn style. <laughs> uh, but uh, here he is setting out his position which is essentially the same as it's been for a while we want a general election this paralysis cannot continue. Uncertainty is putting people's jobs and livelihoods at risk. And if a general election cannot be secured, and we'll try, then we'll keep all options on the table, including the option of campaigning for a public vote. But an election must be and is the priority. It's not only the most practical option, it's also the most democratic option. Um, Anand, uh you know, so the position is they say they're going to table a no-confidence motion when it can have most effect. Do you think they will? And when is that? And can they win it? Can they win it? I think, I think they have to at some point. I think the Grieve Amendment sort of paradoxically gives him a bit of breathing space because he can, he can plausibly argue, let's wait till the Monday, see what she says, and then we'll, we'll reconsider. Uh, I suppose, well, the honest answer is no, I don't see it. Uh, him winning it at the moment. I mean, one, you know, for Tories to vote against their own government in a vote of no confidence, it strikes me that they've got to be able to answer the question, if we go to the country, what would our manifesto say about Brexit? 
And I don't think there is an answer to that question, <laughs> quite frankly. Uh, so I think it's very, very unlikely. The only circumstances under which I see a vote of no confidence passing is we're getting very, very close to the only outcome being a no deal yeah. and Tory remainers panic. Yeah, right. That would be right at the end. I, I think close to March 29th, if we, if we went that late, those are the only circumstances which people like Anna Subri will say, hold on, sit, let's have an election, let's pull the ejector seat. Um, I can't see. And, and as for Labour MPs, Obviously, you know, it, the, the duty bound to always call for general election. That's that's the default position of the opposition. But it's interesting, Corbyn's speech, uh, I listened to it quite carefully. He said, you know, at the earliest opportunity, they want a general election. Of course, he'd say that. But then he said um, that he would only table a motion of confidence if he felt that it was at the, the most... That the best time for it to be won. Yeah. Now, obviously, he, he also conceded at the moment we don't have the votes. He said it himself today. Um, so the, what's curious is... Having had shadow cabinet ministers this week say we'll do it immediately, and then the leadership sort of slightly row back from that, you wonder at what point it's going to happen. And, and Annan put, made the point about, you know, she's got three three days in which to come up with this statement, assuming she loses next week. So she has got until a week on Monday. Will it be then, or will it be, is it possible that actually Corbyn may think, actually, I'm, I know I'm going to lose this motion of confidence, um, but I'll, I'll just do it straight away. In other words, within those three days, have, it, have that whole all out and then say... Well, at least we've cleared that hurdle. But, it's, but isn't that the problem, the hurdle he doesn't want to clear? I because, think that's exactly Because right. he boxed themselves in, because you have mm-hmm. no confidence vote, then yeah. that moves on to, well, now you almost have to, well, have to back a second yeah. referendum, but that's one of the options, and surely then the pressure on him would be massive. Absolutely, I think so that's why his he's own policy off. that they thought was clever at the time of the uh, conference has actually done him over. I know, it's true. I don't know what Nicky thinks about mm. that. I mean, obviously, uh, you can't be too political, but... Um, uh, I mean, what, what do you think about the way, the way out for Labour out of all this? Do you, is, is there a way out for them? I mean, is it obviously as difficult for them as it is for the government? I, I think it is difficult for them. Uh, in the, They've got those, the same groups that they have to wrestle with um, who periodically say, if you don't do X, we're going to do Y. Uh, you can see the same sort of slightly uh, fractious, haunted look on the front bench versus when they've got the back benches behind <laughs> them. Uh, so I don't think it's, it's any easier... The intel I have today is that, you know, talking to people, is that nobody thinks that they have the... For any of the other options, nobody thinks that they have a majority. In fact, they feel actually that they are, all of them, an awfully long way off. Uh, So that basically means that, and this is where I sort of challenge Dominic Grieve on, what has he really done other than limit his and other people's time to come to a consensus? Yeah. Yeah, he's shortened the timetable, hasn't he? And and I think that's a really good point because, I mean, one thing that I I gleaned yesterday from Keir Starmer's big announcement about, look, it may be inevitable that we we, uh, delay implementing uh, Brexit and that we extend Article 50. The the Labour line that the sort of thesis behind that is actually, well, it's because everything's such a mess that, and, and it's the only way of avoiding no deal. And obviously, that plays. And it's the Conservatives' fault. And it's the Tories' fault. It's yeah. nothing to do with us. But when we asked his spokesman, well, yeah, you, you might say it's their fault, but what happens when the government, if the government did say we have to, and it would be the government that has to do it, as Nicky knows, the government would have to say we seek an extension and we need parliamentary approval. What would Labour do? How would it vote? In fact, you'd get before that point because there would be a motion in the House, an amendment of some kind, where Labour would have to say where it stands. And I suspect, um, I only suspect this, but actually what 
Keir Starmer now and realises, and he's not a stupid guy at all, is that the idea that somehow you could hammer through, even with the best will in the world, an agreement with Oliver Letwin and Ken Clark on something like a customs union, even if you could make the unicorn a, a real horse, then about a single market, a strong single market relationship, even if you could do some of that, it's going to take quite a lot of negotiation with Brussels to even hammer that out. So you'd unpick the withdrawal agreement. And I think Starmer realises that's impossible now. It's too late. And because it's too late, the only serious option for Labour is... is an extension if there's a no deal, or possibly an extension from the second referendum. And that's where the tension will lie within the Labour leadership, because Corbyn clearly doesn't want a second referendum. Starmer thinks it's possibly their only option. Just want to add a couple of things. Firstly, it is worth stressing, if you're in favour of leaving the European Union, or reluctantly you think we ought to, and you don't want no deal, this is it. This withdrawal deal is it. It is the only sort of withdrawal deal that will ever be on the table. You can extend for as long as you want. The European Union has certain red lines. It's not going to shift on them. And all the stuff about Norway and Canada is for the next stage anyway. So, so much of the debate is just a waste of our time. Yeah, it's yeah. not about what we're voting on. We the second thing, just sort of coming back to what Nikki said, where you said, you know, the, the Grieve Amendment has sort of lessened people's times to come up with alternative which I thought was kind of sort of charming because you're assuming that the, the Parliament is full of people who want a solution. One of the, one of, <laughs> but, but, but it's a serious point in the sense that one of the weird things about where we're at now is on both extremes of this debate, whether it's, whether it's no-deal Brexit or a second referendum, many parliamentarians want a car crash. That's a very good point. Yeah. You know, it is simply not the case that everyone's in... You know, the, the two leaders are united in being amongst the group of people that would like a solution short of no deal or a referendum. But they have on their back benches a number of people who actually don't want this to work yeah. because it's only once it hasn't worked that their preferred alternative becomes viable. And that's why you can see why the EU just rolls its eyes and thinks, you know, what are we dealing with? Yeah. Um, and I think at the heart of that, because somebody made a comment yesterday, um, who shall remain nameless, where they said, this is the worst parliament I've ever been in. And I sort of fired back and said, don't we all own some responsibility for that? Because what you have from the, the, those cohort that don't want a solution, uh, alternatively, they blame each other. They're the bad guys. No, you know, and, and you have this. And, and we had that, that throughout all these battles of, of, you know, Prime Minister, you really should take those guys to task because, you know, we're only trying to help you. Um, <laughs> but that being said, and without being too sympathetic to parliamentarians, they face some horrible choices, don't they? You know, those sort of centrist Labour MPs are facing a choice between the devil and the deep blue. So you've got Brexit or you've got Corbyn. I mean, it's not a list of your preferred alternatives. And on the Tory benches, you've got, you know, choosing between Brexit and the potential of helping Corbyn win an election. I mean, we did our podcast yesterday with Michael Heseltine and we said to him, what would you least want, Brexit or Corbyn to be Prime Minister? And the look of anguish... <laughs> that crossed his face <laughs> but I bet he said Brexit. before he said, I would rather have Corbyn as Prime yeah, Minister yeah. because it's short-term rather than long-term. But that just it sort of yeah. summed up for me that moment, that, that, you know, the sort of Hobson's choices that are facing a number of MPs at the moment. And yet economically, I understand for somebody that they were over in the States and where the markets price it, that if you uh, have no deal, uh, it's something like uh, 1.18 uh, to the brand. And then if you have Corbyn, it's 1.10. Um, now, this is out-of-date data uh, back from before Christmas. But when you, you really need to break down you know, what happens with a Corbyn government mm -hmm. um, and what are the real dangers of that? And Nikki, you know mm. the PM better than most people, but um, do you, everything that I've been told by cabinet ministers is that she's now made her mind up. She really does not want no deal. 
despite all that 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 brave talk in Lancaster House before the snap election, where you know no deal better than a bad deal, we haven't heard that phrase from her lips and recently. Certainly not unless she's pressed on the point, and she's making quite clear privately. I've read all the stuff. It will be disaster. It's my duty to prepare for it because you know contingent upon a responsible prime mm-hmm. minister. But do you think that actually that that change in her mind that actually now she's seen all the all the dire forecasts that that actually she's going to do something about that look i i I try not to comment because people tend to presume that because you've been in there that you know um and the prime minister is somebody of um uh, um very contained um i wonder you know to to be frank i am really privileged to have have worked with her so i can't say what her viewpoint is i can absolutely categorically say uh, she's extraordinarily cross about the idea of a second referendum i mean you know uh, you want to you know and and so you can't countenance uh, her ever allowing one do you think she'd rather quit than do that i i I really i'm I'm afraid on this because people will read things into it and and you you know politics is uh the art of the possible and people have to assess things. You know, uh, there's this phrase of "we are where we are," and what we've seen over the last since the general election is people having to adapt to the circumstances that they're in. Mm-hmm. So things that we previously thought are unthinkable start to become conceivable. And you know, coming back to what you said about um, people wanting a solution and, and about you know, you know, how, I think this is this. I'm struck. I ramble here. Um, one of the things I was struck You're by fitting well with Huffington Post. <laughs> <laughs> um, in Uncivil War was that contrast between sort of the very um, uh, logical sort of number 10 sort of campaign approach yeah. and this is what we do, etc. And then that thinking more creatively. And I worry that we all get stuck into it. Well, you know, this is unconceivable. So therefore, these are the range of options. And actually, we have to take a step back and challenge ourselves on our basic assumptions. Yeah, I have to say, though, if you want uh, sort of the no-deal conversion of the century is Michael Gove, isn't it? <laughs> uh, yeah. Just the things he's been saying recently has been a real eye-opener. That's uh, true. And I'm actually surprised that he hasn't tried to do more to convince some of his fellow Tories about this. I'm really surprised about that because I think he could have been the, the key s- yeah. swing when it comes And he hasn't to pulled his punches in terms of the evidence he's had about We've just heard him today, and we, said, and we heard him earlier. You know, he had this wonderful phrase about, what was it, this is a cherry... Yes, he, dis- he said the uh, backstop was a bucket of glistening cherries bucket of for glistening the UK. cherries for the UK. Uh, on Scarlett is, Johansson's unicorn. Yeah, <laughs> which, is, which is such a great go phrase. But, I, yeah, I'm really surprised they haven't used him. Yeah. Um, what's interesting is that says just how dug in a lot of the backbench brigadiers are because they oh, yeah. think that he's a, a sellout, he's gone native. You hear this language all the time. It's quite strange. It's the sort of stuff you hear, used to hear about William Hague. He's gone yeah. native at the Foreign Office. Yeah. It used to be Eurosceptic. And it's quite odd. It's, they're now in a sort of tunnel of Euroscepticism where they, they won't listen to anyone because yeah. the simpler option is, as they're getting, as you rightly say, in their inboxes, clean Brexit. It's such a simple, seductive idea. And uh, as Nikki says, ultimately, though, as the Prime Minister said in the speech at the beginning of the year, um, Britain has a genius for pragmatism. But we're not seeing it right now, are we? Should we, uh, should we do a quiz? Yes. It's, <laughs> it's really good. It's terrible. Uh, it's not about Brexit, you'll be pleased to hear. It's quite simple. Um, is it about Wakefield? No. Uh, <laughs> His favourite team, Leeds yeah. United. No. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the names of two MPs, and I just want you to tell me which one was elected first. Oh. It's very straightforward. That's hard. Um, so I haven't got a clever name for it, I'm afraid. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, okay. Um, Dennis Skinner or Sir Peter Bottomley? Ooh, that's a really Obviously, good you one. get bonus points if you actually have more details of when. That's but, uh, a really good one. Let's just go for... So, uh, Paul first. I, I remember Skinner talking... Or I, rem- 
Oh, I'll say about Peter Bottomley is he once tried to sue my local paper because we called him Peter Bumley in, <laughs> in, in a leader column. <laughs> he had to back off in the end. Um, um, I think it's got to be Skinner, hasn't it? Skinner just... Well, Skinner is older. That's my only sort okay. of reason for that. Paul says Skinner. Nicky? I'm the same, I think. Skinner, yeah, I'm going Skinner, Skinner on that. Yeah, it was uh, <laughs> June 1970. Uh, Bottomley was June 75. Well, phew. Okay. I was uh, about to add that. <laughs> <laughs> Peter looks well on it, though. Okay, how about uh, Sir Patrick McLaughlin or George Howarth? Ooh, that is a tricky one. It is actually, yeah. Patrick, I bet they're Patrick really McLaughlin close. Or late this is George difficult. Howarth. Both in the 70s, aren't they? Well, yeah, also Patrick's my former boss when ah. I was in the whip's office, so um, I should know this. Um, <laughs> I'm going to guess George Young because he's been. He's been he's George Howarth. So, sorry, George Howarth. <laughs> yeah. Oh. I'm going. Mm, yeah, George Howarth. He's okay. older. One for Howarth. Nikki. I'll, I'll back Patrick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, unlike these two, I'm not going to pretend to think about it. I'm just going to guess and say Howarth. Um, it was M- McLaughlin. Oh. Uh, he was May '86, <laughs> and Howarth was November. So wow. stormed into the league. Yeah. Okay. Uh, another one. Um, Hilary Benn or David Lammy? Oh, I know this. I think because <laughs> I had lunch angle my computer away with from Paul Derek Fatchett. I had lunch with Derek Fatchett very, very shortly wow. before he died. It was really, really sad. And then this guy Hilary Benn suddenly comes up and gets the the seat, and that was in ninety nine. Well, Paul's doing this. I'm going to say yeah. Hilary Benn without. So that. Okay. Ben's been there longer than I think. So two Bens. I'll back Ben as well because of his establishment. Because you're banking your lead, aren't you? It, well, indeed. Yeah. But also because you know, you know, his role in the select committees, yeah. uh, it kind of suggests more established, uh, you know, kind of has, has built his, yeah. his his presence. Good guess work. Okay. Well, so it is Ben, but um, not by loads. So he was June 99 and Lammy was June 2000. Yes, that's um, it. Okay, it we knew that too. I'm going to give yeah. you two more. So oh, second to last one, uh, Barry Shearman or Harriet Harman? Harriet Harman. Harriet, because she's mother of the house. She must have been there a long time. I'm going to say Harriet. Good about Barry. Ah, There you go. Okay, and Anand? Harriet. Uh, Shearman. Uh, (laughs) Well done. She's on a roll. Yeah, yeah. Uh, May 1979. Harman was October 82. And I'll give you one last one. Um, Lucy Powell. Labour's Lucy Powell or Andy McDonald, the Shadow Transport Secretary. Oh, I think Andy... uh, Lucy Powell has been there longer than Andy McDonald. I'm guessing. I'm guessing that. So pa- Paul says pal. Anand, what do you reckon? Totally clueless. Former uh, director of Britain and Europe, by the way, who's now, yes. who's now supporting a Norway Plus solution <laughs> for Brexit. I she think wants Brexit. It's called a common market too. Uh, sorry, <laughs> common market too. Sorry. Catchy <laughs> phrase, that, isn't it? Yeah. I think she's but as I can't remember that. the other name now, yeah. I'm going to say Lucy. Lucy or who? Pa- Lucy Powell or Andy McDonald? Uh, let's back the, uh, the, the woman MP. Lucy. Uh, it was, but not by much. So Lucy Powell, 15th of November, 2012. Andy McDonald, 29th of November, 2012. So many pilots. Yeah. That's what that shows, isn't it? Yeah, so that's a quiz. No idea who won there, but... Um, <laughs> I think Nicky, actually. <laughs> yeah. Hands well done, down. Nicky. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> I shall feel smug. <laughs> okay, thanks for listening, everyone. Um, we'll leave you with Andrea Ledsom, who's clashed repeatedly with John Burko on Peston's show last night, talking about an incredibly annoying, squeaky creature. Best villain. Best villain. Well, this goes to an incredibly annoying little creature <gasps> oh. that squeaks a lot Uh-oh. and has found going? a place in the corridor outside my office. But I have a plan to get rid of it. 
And I am, of course, talking about the mouse in my office. Not the Speaker John Burko. Uh, no. Is he near mouse. you? Yeah, <laughs> but I'm talking about the mouse. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.